0: Reading is also from the gospel according to Acts. We'll be reading the book of Acts, not one of the Gospels, but the letter, the, the book that Luke wrote, Acts chapter four, beginning in verse thirty two. And I'll be reading into chapter five, verse sixteen. It is it is the gospel. Um, that is being proclaimed. Um, it is as if the Lord Jesus is with His apostles. Well, He isn't, but He has sent the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit He is with them. Acts 5, Acts 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that Ought or anything of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices to the thing of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need and Joseph who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas which is being interpreted the son of consolation a levite and of a country of cyprus having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land. While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young man arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst or dared no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick unto the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Every one. Thus far, may God bless the reading of His own Word. In Acts chapter 4, and we hope to consider that short passage at the end of 4 and into chapter 5. Um, the theme of this message is signs and wonders, because every, everything of this whole passage is revealing exactly that. We we hear in the text that um, God is operating signs and wonders. This is what they um, prayed for in verse 30. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy child, holy child Jesus. And in verse 12 towards the end of what we read in chapter 5, it says, "...and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people." And and there are results connected to all of this. Just before this, we saw um, the church being attacked from the outside. It was the first persecution. The very ones who arrested and killed the Lord Jesus have now arrested Peter and John. They warned them and threatened them and commanded them to stop preaching on the name of the Lord Jesus. They went back to the group of disciples. They prayed. Remember, the ground even trembled. And they continued the ministry of proclaiming the Lord Jesus. They completely did not heed to the command to stop preaching Christ. They continued... Even, it seems, with, with renewed vigor and, and courage and boldness. And, and then there's that whole reality of how they were living in such an astonishingly selfless way. Where they weren't considering what they had as their own, but wanting to share it with those who were in need. But now, there's an attack from the inside. And that's what we're going to look at in our second point especially. And and neither will this be the last attack. The very next portion will be a renewed attack from the outside. All of the apostles will be arrested at that time. A new arrest. And then following that, there's a renewed attack from the inside where there will be tumult and, and complaining inside the church. And so with all of this, um, Luke is giving us a very well-rounded picture of what's going on. Um, his his description of the blessings are, are amazing, but he's very honest. And he says it's not just full of blessing, there are challenges as well. So the difficulties and the rewards. Um, this is even one of the elements that shows how Scripture is to be trusted. Because if these were men fabricating a false religion, why would they be so um, open about the problems that were happening, especially the problems inside? And Luke is not erasing any of those things. What we're going to see right now is literally a problem right inside the church. This is not persecution. This is not people criticizing the church. This is not um, those who hate the church um, showing what they dislike about the church. These are people who claim to be part of the church who are bringing a great challenge and a great sin inside the church so chapter 4 ended with the great example of Barnabas as one of those who considered the land that he had and sold it and gave it to the apostles so that those with need could be taken care of. And chapter 5 begins with the sad example of Ananias and Sapphira. There's, there's obviously a, there a, a parallel showing of all the people who were giving, he gives the example of one. And then he gives the example of another. And that's where he uses that opportunity to reveal the problems that were happening. Um, Matthew Henry, he says a very good summary about this whole portion. um, Including um, the good things and the bad things. He says, the signs and wonders which the apostles wrought were hitherto miracles of mercy. But now comes in a miracle of judgment. And here is an instance of severity following the instances of goodness, that God may be both loved and feared. And so he is pointing to the fact that this death that happens, these two deaths, they have an element of a miracle in them. It wasn't just a natural death, as we would call it. So, first of all, let's look at the great power and grace. And we will look at three things, both before the sad event in chapter 5 and even as a result of the event in chapter 5. We, we want to see here how God is showing His power and He is showing His grace. Um, in, in verse 33, it, it says this. It says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so these are two words to describe if we think the positive things, the good things that were happening, the rewards, the blessings. They were manifestations of power and manifestations of God's grace. And the, and the first thing that we can point to, just just in passing, because we have spoken about this, it's about this, this heart of sacrifice. The sacrifice, you could say, that leads a comfort these people who are selling things that they have are doing a great sacrifice. Remember, we already considered that it's it's very unlikely that they were selling everything because immediately they would be part of the ones who are needy. They must have sold the extra things they had, but there are clear instant, ins, um, instances that they were selling perhaps all of an extra lot that they have and bringing all of the money of that one lot. And even what happens to Ananias and Sapphira indicates that because they were wanting to have the reputation of having given everything from the selling of a lot. See, they are seeing the sacrifice that the church people are doing. And they want to be known as those who are doing the sacrifice as well. Well, put that apart for a while, there is the reality that a lot of sacrifice was being done. And in, in sh- doing this sacrifice, they were showing a lot of compassion. It's so much so that as, as Luke takes Barnabas as an example, his, his name is Joseph, or you could also say Joseph. This is the Greek for Joseph. Joseph. And he was surnamed Barnabas. The apostles gave him this name, Barnabas, which means the son of consolation. You know, as, as this man is thinking that his possessions are not his own, he wants to share with everyone in need, it will meet people who become comforted with that. And, and we, we need to admit, this is what we see. There's an overwhelming sense of selflessness in the hearts of God's people. They're not considering their own things as their own things. They're not concerned primarily with their possession. They, they are concerned with the whole body of Christ and their needs as a whole. And when they do that, they are comforting others. They're consoling others. When His name, the Son of Consolation, that means comfort. That means to ease from pain and grief. Um, that's what he was doing. And, and, and many people in the church were doing the same thing. They were comforting others. And I believe this is one of the things singled out. Because see, these are people who have all been comforted. Uh, the, the mass majority of these. Um, right now, yes, it's all of them. They were, they were Jewish people. They were people who were religious. They, they had an, a, a fear of God. They, they were in Jerusalem because of Passover, many of them, um, for that very reason because they wanted to worship God. They wanted to, to show their honor to God. And they were waiting for the promise of the Messiah of God. That's, that was the life of every Jewish person waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And the coming of the Messiah was the greatest consolation they were waiting for. Um, Remember Isaiah 40 verse 1 where the prophet declares, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry out unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And remember the declaration that the That the Messiah would come was a declaration of comfort. And see, these are people who have realized Isaiah 40 verse 1, Isaiah 53, all of those passages proclaiming the Messiah, the Comforter of Israel, has been fulfilled. The man whom we saw crucified, whom many of us were there saying crucify Him, He is the one who is the Comforter of Israel. And now He has comforted me because I've believed in Him and my sins have been forgiven. Even the sins of those who were actively there partaking of the death of Christ. And imagine how comforted they are. And because they're full of comfort, they're able to comfort others. This is a dynamic, beloved, of the Christian heart. The Christian is the man or the woman in this world who most is able to show comfort to others because he or she has been shown the greatest comfort that can ever come to a heart. What would be of Israel and what would be of you and me if Christ had not come? And if there were no Savior, if there were no satisfaction for our sins, there would be no comfort. There would be only the danger of death and then the fear of judgment and then the condemnation of hell forever. It's absolutely without comfort when there is no message of Christ. But a believer is exactly one who has seen that there is hope for the future. He has embraced the Messiah and so he knows his sins are all taken care of and he knows there's heaven ahead. He knows there's eternity. So he even looks at his things and says, "Well, okay, this is what God has given to take care of me. I'm being taken care of. But look at that brother. Look at that sister. They need help. We need to do something together. And and the church comes around. It, it is a family. And, and, and just like... You, you would not consider the things your own for a child and you would take care of that child as belonging to yourself the same thing happens in the whole reality of the church because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and how could maybe ten families here of the church be doing perfectly well and two families of the church here be suffering and here these are our brothers and our sisters and we don't care no that doesn't exist in the true church Because we've been all comforted. We know there's heaven. This money in the bank is not mine. This home that I have, it's not mine. Don't we sit around the meal and thank God for the meal? We're declaring it's not ours. He he gave it to us, but see, it came from Him. This is the one way that the world does not understand but that the Christian has to understand. The Christian that perhaps has greatest affliction is because that lesson has still not been learned. So that if I lose something because there's some kind of financial problem, I'm also not losing something that is essentially mine. God gave it to me for a while and He took it away. It was His all the while. When we have that understanding, we also don't suffer as much because we understand the Lord gave, the Lord took it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is how the church was living in those days with, with that understanding and they were able to sacrifice. And, and then secondly, we could speak of the conversions. This is another thing that we see that's just so marked and so astonishing. We, we do call this like an epoch of revival. The church began and it was revival immediately. Look at the numbers. We heard of 3,000 who were baptized and who were added to the bosom of the church. And then we heard the number 5,000 and, and, and the word continues to be proclaimed. And look what we read in verse um, 33 of chapter 4. Um, it says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So the message is going forth. And then when we go to verse 14, it says of chapter 5, And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women. And it seems now that the word multitudes is taken over for the number. It gives almost the idea that Luke has decided it, it, either it's hard to give a number or it doesn't matter anymore. It's it's just it's just so many people who are coming to the bosom of the church who are who are added to the Lord. What what a beautiful phrase for conversion. These are believers. Look, and believers were the more added to the Lord. And if you go up a few verses, verse eleven, it's the first time we read in Acts the name church. And great fear came upon all the church. That's the assembly. Um, that's now the name of to these people who are called believers who were added to the Lord. The conversions are are so many. The Lord is saving people. He is saving souls. That's the second thing we notice. And then the third thing we notice under this theme of great power and grace are the miracles. And miracles that, of course, are leading to great audiences. So we have um, the comfort that the, the, the sacrifice that is leading to great comfort, we have the conversions that are leading to many salvation that are saving souls and thirdly the miracles that lead to great audience it's obvious that these people are coming because they're hearing of the great things that are happening it's it's, it's, it's a certain thing. It's, it's, not, it's not something we have to conjecture. Um, the text is leading exactly this after it speaks of multitudes that are actually converted in verse 14. Verse 15, it's about the multitudes who are coming because they're interested in the healings. "...in so much that they brought forth the sick unto the streets, and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them." The sense we have is that there are now so many. It's, It's even too many for Peter to talk individually with each one of them. And you can imagine the apostles may be doing that, talking to some of them, but Peter... He, he just passes by and His shadow passes over them and what we can understand is that there are healings that are happening. That's what verse 16 testifies. So what Jesus promised is being fulfilled. Remember, very specifically, John fourteen twelve. Jesus had said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on Me, the works that I do shall he do also, And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto the Father. And he was meaning greater because there would be events like this. We never read of an event where Jesus, just by passing, his shadow was used for the healing of all these people. And even in Jesus' ministry, we didn't hear of thousands and thousands of genuine conversions. And so jesus promised this this would happen and it's not because peter has a greater power it's it's very clear it's because of jesus's power he's just showing more of this power now that he is seated in heaven he he showed enough power for his ministry um, that he knew was wise to show and now he's continuing to show power again this is why we're talking about great power and grace that that's what these miracles were doing Now, we we need to always remember, let us not get sad that these very miracles are not happening today the very same way. If God wanted them to happen, they would. It's all a matter of His wisdom. It's all a matter of His will. But we need to understand that we have them because they are in Scripture. So we can preach about them and we can proclaim them. And there may be people who will be interested to hear about them, and that brings them to hear the minute bring to hear the gospel, and we preach the gospel to these very souls. Because the healing didn't have in and of itself a purpose to, to, to simply heal and to continue healing, like in a non-stop kind of way. When, when we continue reading the Bible, we'll find Paul. Doing some miracles, but then we don't find him doing miracles. And there are people that he's praying for and sad and scared that maybe they'll die. So it shows that even Paul, who would have had the gift of healing, ended up not being able to heal at certain points. So it's obvious that God took this away. ...as a gift that was given to a specific person... ...who had the power of touching someone... ...or speaking a word and somebody would be healed. What that indicates is that the healing in itself... ...was not the most important thing. But the healing obviously... ...legitimized the message. They were saying that Jesus is alive. And people were seeing evidences of the power of Jesus. They couldn't see Jesus but they knew He was alive because they were doing the same works Jesus did. So great power and grace. So these, this is one description you see before and after this event in the middle that, that is sad. But let us go now to our second point to this event in the middle. Chapter 5, these verses all the way to verse 11. And, and look at this great fear and honor. I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving already the result What happened to Ananias and Sapphira brought to the church and to the world a great sense of fear and a great sense of honor. I use the word honor because of verse 13. Not just because of what the word fear means because fear does mean to honor in verse 11 and great fear came upon all the church. That that means a sense of reverence, a sense of awe, Even elements of fear in in the sense of I better not do something because I don't want the same judgment. It says, and upon as many as heard these things. So yeah, there there were people afraid. And there were people showing honor with that fear. But, But there's another word that speaks of honor. And this is in verse 13. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, the idea we can understand here is that people were being very careful to say they wanted to join the church or, or say that they were Christians or, or, or even profess faith because they're, they're being careful about it. They're realizing it is dangerous if they're not true believers. And then it says, but the people magnified them. So it, there, there was this overarching atmosphere where people were magnifying The believers, the the word magnified can literally mean glorified, to honor, to respect. That made them think we, we better not criticize them. If their God deals among them that harshly with those who go out of order, I better be careful how I judge them. So there was this great fear. And honor and and here is where we can say this is what luke is doing he 's giving this very well orbed mindset of what was going it wasn 't all beautiful and conversions and no problems. there were problems outside, and now Luke will reveal a problem inside and and as we Look at this problem, let's let's begin by considering one thing. We we learn at least three main things. There there's so many other things we could speak of, but in summary, let's look at these three things within the second point. First, like an overarching message, lesson that they're learning. All these three are very connected. The seriousness of sin. God's word is teaching here not just the church of that day but the church of today your heart and mine that sin is serious there's a sinfulness to sin that we need to refamiliarize ourselves with and this, beloved, is where it's so important that you and I keep reading the Bible, keep reading the Bible, because for someone who reads the Bible all the time, this is not a surprise. Because your mind will remember that this is what God has done before. And you'll be able to even compartmentalize when He did it and why He did it. And you can, and you can even have an idea of, you could say, a theology of God's judgment. But it won't be a surprise that God judges But the sad thing is that this even happens among many, many believers, many people who go to church. And they read this and they're shocked and they're embarrassed. And they try to even somehow explain it away. There's some liberal commentators who try to say that here Luke was really not saying the truth. Or some say that, well, here Peter was really lacking pastoral skills. He never sat down with each one of them. But there was judgment immediately. The, the truth is that Luke and Peter have nothing to do with what's going on. Luke is faithfully registering what happened. And Peter, here, you could really see Peter basically as a prophet who knew all of this from revelation of God. And he's just simply speaking to these, to Sapphira and Ananias, God's Word. We see here the authority of the apostles. This is not about man. This is about God. The problem is because Ananias and Sapphira thought that being a Christian is about man and not about God. And so what what is it that happened? Well, Ananias and Sapphira were were a couple who, who they were seeing other people sell things and bringing everything. Um, it's clear that, that there was this great um, amount of them. Possibly not every single one of them. But a great amount of them were bringing everything from something they sold. And it's obvious that Ananias of Fire wanted that reputation. And yet when they got the money. The, the full amount from selling that land. They kept back. That, that's a very important phrase in verse 2. And kept back part of the price this word kept back when you put it into the Hebrew or when when the Hebrew is translated into this kept back it's exactly the same word that is spoken of Achan when he goes into Jericho and kept back those items that God had forbidden to be taken and remember the story Achan and his whole family end up being judged because of that incident and so it's obvious that 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 Luke is bringing that reality that the sin of of Ananias and Sapphira were, were very connected to the sin of Achan. They they were in essence stealing from God Himself. And, and and Peter makes it clear that they're lying to the Holy Ghost. Later he says, and this is lying not unto men, but unto God. And we we find even in a sense um, going back, who gave perhaps the idea for him to do this would have been Satan. We, we see an involvement of Satan here. Um, he says, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? So Peter is even, of course, this, this is where we see Peter like a prophet. Um, first, you wonder, how did he know about this already? Um, we're not told. It could have been that someone came and informed him, but very likely God told him exactly how it will follow. But then he knows that Satan filled his heart, but even as much as this is true, in verse um, in, in verse four, we find that he did exactly what he wanted. Look at verse 4. While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Do you see what the text is doing? As much as it is showing the source of the temptation in Satan, the blame is given to Ananias. Why have you conceived this thing in thine own heart? See, Satan didn't force Ananias to come up with this idea. He he didn't force him to do this idea. He may have suggested, he may have begun the temptation, but Sapphira and Ananias conceived it in their own hearts. Right there you have a theology of sin and even the involvement of Satan. He never can be blamed as the sinner in regards to our sins. He can be the tempter. But we are the sinner. And so we see here the seriousness of sin. We we see what the sin is in itself. And and, and why was it so serious? Well, it was serious. Peter says it. Because he was lying so directly to the Holy Spirit Himself. It it wasn't a lie more to the side. and, and It ultimately would be towards God. But it was... Connected to God in a very direct way. It was, it was like the offerings given as they worshipped God. And they were lying about the quantity. Right, right here we see the great danger of covetousness and, and how truly the love of money is the root of all evil. Not too long ago, if we 're reading the Bible, we were in Luke not too long ago, and there was another person there that because of money, he dared betray the Lord Jesus Christ, and now we have this couple who, because of money, they are betraying the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Satan filled Ananias heart, so he he has that power to fill, to give ideas. But it was Ananias who conceived it in his heart. So sin is serious. Beloved, let us use this example to to realize we we cannot play with sin. And why is it serious? It, It is serious because of the second thought in this point here. It is the holiness of God. That's why sin is serious. Because it's an affront against a holy God. It is, it is an affront against the God who created us to be holy. And yet we are fighting with Him saying, no, I will not be holy. And yet we came from this holy God. Our very breath is His. We're living because of His grace. He gives us food. He gives us strength. He gives us energy. He gives us clothing. He gives us a car. He gives us a family. And then what do we do? We sin. And so we're rebelling against the very God who is so holy and so kind and so loving. And, and, and remember this reality. And here we are in the very act of sin. And, and all of that givingness from God is still active. It, it, while we are there perhaps stealing something, it is this hand that belongs to God. It is a strength that God gave me. I'm clothed with the God gave me and I'm there committing that theft. You see, there's this reality that God is, is loving us even while we are sinning. And so then as Christians, as our eyes open to that reality and dynamic of sin, how can we dare sin? And then you think of Ananias and Sapphira. They they were sinning in regards to the very worship of this God who is so loving and who is so giving. And here they are in their act of giving and they're saying, let's keep back this for us. Let's give that amount. Everybody's going to think, wow, they're the ones who gave everything, just like Barnabas. It's, it's that mindset of the little plaque and you have your name on it. And you know how they put the quantities. Those, those are always hard things to understand how they can do that biblically. Because we're not even supposed to let our left know how the, what the hand right does, and yet these little plaques everywhere, and, and, and they'll show how much this group of people gave, that group of people gave. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted the plaque that was the highest. That would show they gave everything. When in truth, it was more there towards the average because they probably were getting only half. So it wasn't just a sin against the Holy Spirit and lying. They, they were hypocrites, they were proud, they were covetous, they were greedy. And, and right here we see, beloved, again, another serious aspect of sin. It's never going to be one sin. It will always grow and multiply until we repent. And it's all that bad because how holy God is. God is a holy God. He is a God who has absolutely no blemish in Him. And in our afternoon service we, we want to have a whole point just dedicated to the, the holiness, the righteousness of God because of the theme of that sermon and even going through that it's it's so convicting to think you think that's something we all know of course God is holy but as you, as you meditate upon that reality it, it goes helping us realize how worse and worse and worse sin is because it's against this God who is so gracious so good so loving so merciful let me just bring this one dynamic here We look at the sin, and what is the reaction of our own hearts? If we're honest, we we are somewhat shocked, and we think, why did God do this? Why didn't He act in patience? And we start having that attitude. But consider God's Word. When did God do this before? Well, we can think of Achan. They had just gone into Jericho. God gloriously gave that city to them. He made that decree. Don't take any of the things. They're all under the ban. Well, Achan dared do it, he took it to himself, hid it under his tent. The Lord disciplined him and his family. So strong judgment. There are many other sins, but you don't see that in any page of the Bible. Every page of the Bible. All of a sudden the tabernacle is instituted the worship of god will be conducted Nadab and Abihu those first two sons of Aaron are going in to offer incense but they offer the bible says strange fire and they are burned in the very act and then you look at those two events you already see already something of a of a of a harmony and let me bring one more one more instance where something like that drastic judgment happened. David is excited because the Ark of the Covenant will enter now Jerusalem. His plan is to, in the future, build a temple. He dwells in a palace. God dwells in tents. Remember, David wants to build a a temple for God, so he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant first. That was the one furniture that was connected with the presence of God, and he wants to show honor to it. But he already does something wrong because he hadn't been reading his Bible much, and instead of having the Levites carry that Ark with those staves, he put that ark in a new wagon. He thought that would be honorable. That's when we think that our ideas are good but they're wrong. He, it, was a, it was a good um, way, means of transportation. It seemed more honorable in a cart, But as it was going through those dirt roads, Uzzah who was there towards the back saw that it hit a bump and he saw the ark almost about to fall and he touched it in his heart. He was showing honor to God and holding the ark so it wouldn't fall and he died on the spot. And once we understand it all, it's, he was disobeying. You were not supposed to touch that ark. You're supposed to carry it with those days. It had to be Levites. It had to be people from the priestly line. None of those principles were being obeyed. And so, okay, we see, we see Achan dying that way, Nadab and Abihu, and then Uzzah, and then what did all of these incidences have in common was this, these were all beginnings if you put then Sapphira and her husband Ananias. Same thing. This is the beginnings of the church. And so you see what God does. As as, as he's beginning new things. He was beginning the entrance into the promised land. He was um, beginning the tabernacle worship. And then with Uzzah and David. He was beginning the ark being finally in Jerusalem. And right here with Ananias and Sapphira. The, the church is beginning. And and. And when gross sin is right there at the beginning, God says absolutely no. And from the very beginning, I will make it very clear that my worship is my way. That God's word has to be obeyed. And He's teaching, again, the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. But now, now this is what, what, what makes it in our hearts a, a sense of comfort and a sense of awe. The Bible has hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pages and events and narratives. And I just gave you four events. there, There are other judgments. But given how often we sin, don't you think you would flip the page of the Bible and here's one more person being torn, one more person being killed, one more person being burnt? No. It is God's mercy. There are very gross sins... And they don't receive a punishment like this. And what we learn is this there are enough of them so that we know God is just, but there are not so many of them so that we know He is merciful. And when you do the math, you really would have to agree that God shows His mercy a lot more often than He shows His justice. And that in itself should make us love Him and be thankful. And fear him. This is the third aspect in this second point. So we we, we looked at the sinfulness of sin, the holiness of God, and what does this all redound to? See, they're they're all so connected. It redounds to the fear of God. And I'm wanting to speak of what what he says in verse 11 after all of that happened, after that man um, did what he did and he was. was, Buried, And then Sapphira comes and he corroborates with with her husband. She's given somewhat of an opportunity. Peter asks her. That would have been her moment to say, no, Peter, I want to say the truth. There's an indication that God was showing a mercy to Sapphira, giving her the opportunity to confess her sin. But she goes right along with her husband. And so he declares that judgment will come for her too. Well, that brought great fear upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Now John Murray said something very interesting to this question. Someone asked, is it right to be afraid of God? Because of course we would speak of this fear that there are elements of fear in the sense of being afraid. And and John Murray was asked, is it right to be afraid of God? And he, he answered this way, a very good answer. He said, it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is a reason to be afraid. And this is where the fear of God for a believer even though we often do say well it has to do with honor it has to do with respect it has to do with reverence but yes there is an element where it may have to do with fear as in being afraid. For example, if you are like David who committed that sin with Bathsheba and the prophet comes to him and says that there will be great consequences, this is what John Murray says, that it would be the essence of impiety if David were not afraid. And if he were to disdain that prophet and the message... Or there may be some who are confessing believers and they're living openly in adultery and they're not afraid. That reveals either someone who's not saved at all or greatly backslidden. And the Lord has a way to bring that fear to the heart through His disciplines. God's Word says it's a... a, fearful thing to be in the hands of the living God see we you may have heard the comments right it's very common to hear people say like this when I think about God I I, I like to think of him like this or you hear people saying for me God is a God who is loving and kind and never angry or or mean and and they think they have the authority to create a theology about God and his attributes we're living in a day where where the fear of god is is a word from the past at the most but in the hearts of true believers thankfully but in a general sense some people just think you know that's that's for the older days we just need to think of the realities that he will forgive us that he will bless us that there is heaven and we're not in danger of hell But God remains the same. He hates sin because He is holy. And that should bring in the heart of the believer a fear to sin. Young man or young girl, boys and girls, if there are sins you are committing that are clear, continuous, you should be afraid. Because God can discipline you. Because you're dishonoring Him. You should be afraid in this sense. Not not that you might suffer. But even a fear that you are grieving Him. You see, the Bible says that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is saddened. The Holy Spirit is suffering, you could say, in the sense that, that He sees that sin and He dislikes it. It doesn't bring happiness to His heart. He, he, he is grieved. That means sorrowful. I, I confess that I, 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 I know I need to be careful, and I, I am purposely careful because I, I am in the realm of complete mystery. How can I speak of a God who is eternal, righteous, He doesn't suffer, and yet He grieves? He can be sorrowful. In our human way of understanding, it's shedding tears. And yet, he lives in heaven where there are no tears. But see, this is a tension, of course, for you and I to understand. Wait, I am sinning and I'm not grieving. I'm not even afraid. And yet, God who is in me, I claim that I have the Spirit, he is grieving. You see, you understand how dangerous it is for a Christian who wants to just wipe all of that reality away just to be happy, just to have peace. But if we have sinned, we should not have peace. We should go to the cross. And Understand what I'm saying. I'm saying we shouldn't have a peace, as it were, that I steal it away and that I do not understand the seriousness of my sin. But I'm not saying that you need to pay to have that peace. I'm not saying that you need to suffer enough to have that peace. I'm just saying go to Christ and confess your sin for that peace. And there, yes, truly believe it. That that sin was crucified with Christ. He had to die for that sin for you to be forgiven. And we are supposed to believe That there is forgiveness. That there is pardon. But you see that only increases in my sense of honor and reverence. For a God who is so gracious and so glorious and so loving. Because that's what Jesus did when he came to earth. He died for all the sins of all his people. So that we can have this comfort and this joy. And be able to comfort others. And show love to others. So may God help us as a church. As we live our lives. So that we even communicate the right message to the world. That we honor this God. We we don't hide that he brought this judgment. Because it's a judgment. That you and I deserve. But by his grace he chose not to give it. And he can be gracious to others. Let us teach others about his mercy and his love and that they would trust him and followed him and follow him and what a blessed result to see that the church instead of complaining about this God they are honoring him and I believe that honor of their God who showed himself so just is part of what is making the watching world magnify them And beloved, put this in the category of what I often mention and how sad it is that there are even Christians who speak in terms of being okay to be angry with God. When you think that way, philosophically speaking, you are saying God did something wrong. I am more righteous than He is. Why did He do this? I have a better idea. I'm holy. He's evil the world sees that the world hears Christians talk that way that Christians talk to each other that it's okay to be angry with God well the world will not magnify the church they will just say well why be part of it we're we're angry at that God too we don't see any reason to serve him if those Christians are discontent with their God, why, why will I join them with the God they're discontent with? You, you notice how dramatic that is? But these believers were in fear, in honor of their God, in awe, in reverence. And the watching world saw that and magnified them and praised them and honored them They were careful because they were scared. But as they heard the gospel and understood it right, they realized, I don't need to be scared of this God who loves me, who loves the very sinners that are in danger of judgment. And what makes it as clear as ever, beloved? And I'll end with this. The Lord Jesus himself. The fact God is angry with sin doesn't mean, and sinners, doesn't mean that there's no hope for us. He sent His Son. And that's where His anger poured forth all the greater. Jesus had not been in Achan. Jesus had not been in Uzza. Jesus had not been in Ananias and Sapphira. Name one sin that He would have sinned. What did He take back to Himself? In what way did He offer strange fire? Never. The Lord Jesus was always holiness to the Lord. He obeyed God in full. But on the cross, he received a judgment that was focused, that was upon him because he was dying for the sins of all his people. And this is what's so encouraging. When you understand this and then believe, you realize okay, God is a God that I will honor in my fear, but I don't need to be afraid in that despairing way. Yes, if I want to sin and just hurry on with sin, see, that's where the fear comes in. But as I want to live with filial love, right, the love of a son, the love of a daughter, I have nothing to fear because He loves me. And the proof is He gave His only begotten Son And He loves His Son for what He did. So God is gracious and good. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee for what we read in Thy Word and we plead, Lord, that Thy grace would keep us from sins that would offend Thee, that would offend the world, that would be an offense to the world. That would cause the world, Lord, to even blaspheme against thee. Help us, Lord, to understand thou art a God who is holy, a God who hates sin. And we thank thee, Lord, that even though with our indwelling sin we may have this bent and this temptation to sin, we thank thee, O Lord, that we are not under its power any longer, that we are not under its authority and that Jesus has forgiven all of our sins. And Lord, in the, in the strength and the power of what the gospel is, what Jesus has done for us, Lord, help us to live like the church in those days, with holy fear of Thee, with great compassion for one another, and a great yearning to tell the world about Christ, that they too may know Jesus and be saved. And have the security that's eternal. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.